This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-wy-giving. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts. I thought we were in uh, Philippians. Well, we are. But what we're in is a study in the letters of the apostles. And so the book of Acts is one of the letters, the Apostle Luke. It's a letter from him that's a historical account of the early days of the Christian church, the early years of the Christian church, and many of the things that happened. Because there's something I've been convinced of for many, many years. It's that if you're going to know, if you're going to understand where you're going, you have to know where you've come from. And so we are but one church. We are but one assembly, one congregation in the greater body of Christ. And that body is vast and includes an awful lot of people. And we're just one group among them. So, well, all right, well, um, are we right and everybody else wrong? Well, no, we're not trying to go there. We're not trying to alienate necessarily. Uh, we're not trying to cause division necessarily. We are simply one group that is seeking the will of God and that wants to be where God wants us to be, that wants to do what God wants us to do. We want to please the Lord. Amen? And with our hearts and our souls and spirits and everything oriented towards God, oriented towards His kingdom, and oriented towards His Word, which is our roadmap, then we really don't have anything to fear. We really don't have anything to fear at all. We just keep our, keep our compass on Him, and away we go. We follow His leading. We follow His Word. There we go again. The Word and the Spirit, we need them both. And if we have them both and follow them both, take them both seriously, then we don't have anything to be worried about. But we have a common origin. We all have a common origin. And it goes all the way back to this book right here. So where did the church come from? Well, wasn't the Catholic Church the first church? No, the Catholic Church was not the first church. They are ancient, yes. They have a very long and a very, uh, let's just say a very full history, okay? But the Eastern Orthodox churches are older than they are. And even they aren't the first church necessarily. And it's not about who was first. It's not about which church came around first. It's not about that at all. It's about which church is staying holy and in the will of God. Can I get an amen on that? Because if you look back, if you actually go over it, and I know we haven't actually started reading in Acts just yet. We will here in just a moment. This is all just preamble. If you go over to the book of the Revelation and you read in the first few chapters there, you come across a series of seven letters that were written. They were dictated, if you will. They were given by God to John to deliver to the seven churches that were in Asia. Not all of those churches were doing the right thing. In fact, only two of those seven churches uh, received a letter of commendation, so to speak, a letter that was nothing but encouragement. The other five churches had some fairly serious corrections in them, warnings, as acknowledgement of the things that they did right, but then a warning of the things that they were doing wrong and that they needed to correct those things 
or that God would remove their candlestick, so to speak. He would, he would basically uh, cut them off and have no more dealings with them. So it's not longevity that makes a church right before God. It's not age that makes a church right before God. It's like, you know, just because you've got an old person doesn't mean that they're holy. It just means that they're an old person. They're worthy of a degree of respect just by way of age, and the Bible talks about that. But it's the same way with churches. Just because they've been around 1,500 years doesn't mean that they're right today. Because, let me tell you something about institutions, okay? Institutions endure, yes, but institutions also change. It's what they do. Look at America as an institution. Look at our various political parties as institutions. Look at, uh, look at your favorite restaurant that you loved back when you were 10. Are they even still around anymore? And if they are, do they look the same? Are they making the same food? Are they, you know, institutions endure, but they also tend to change because people grow and people grow old and then they die. And so there's a lot of things that factor into it. There's a lot of things that factor into it. That being said, let's begin in the book of Acts. The Apostle Luke wrote or narrated this, and it begins in chapter 1. He says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but, and then he begins to quote Jesus here, wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So five verses into this, and we've already got some stuff that we can chew up and, and, and teach and learn from. So let's go back to the beginning. He mentions the former treatise. What was the former treatise? The Gospel according to Luke. That was part one of this two-part letter. The book of Acts is in fact part two of that letter. So he mentions the, the Gospel that he had written before. Uh, addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus uh, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And then in verse 3 here, he mentions concerning Jesus, he says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. What was his passion? That was his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. All of that rolled up together is the passion of the Christ from beginning to end. So he says he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. What's that saying there? It's not a throwaway sentence that's just some introduction for a greater work of, lit of uh, literature here. It's a reminder that Jesus rose again from the dead in body. His body rose again. It wasn't some spiritual resurrection. It was His Spirit returned to His body, His Spirit and His soul. Those two things that are so tightly intertwined together, you can't hardly tell them apart. You can't tell where one ends and the other begins. His Spirit and soul 
rose up from the nether regions, so to speak, and returned to his body, which became alive again after three days dead in the grave. Now, there's no getting around that. That is a bedrock doctrine of Christianity. It's, it's part of our identity, who and what we are, not just who and what we believe. Because if that had not happened, we don't have eternal life. His death bought us forgiveness for sins, but it was his resurrection that bought us eternal life, isn't it? So what was the death penalty for sin? Well, the death penalty for sin or the penalty for sin is death. The law required death for transgressing the will of God, for for offending God, for going against his expressed will or even his unexpressed will, because there are things that are just intrinsically evil, whether he said anything about them or not. Things like murder, okay? things like robbery and theft. These are things that whether a person's ignorant of them or not, it's not going to get them off the hook. Am I right? So the death penalty was satisfied for all of our sins. The death penalty was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ, but it was his resurrection from the dead that opened up eternal life for every single one of us. Had he not risen again, had he just stayed dead, what reason would we have to believe that we would be resurrected in any capacity at all? And I know we're hearkening over to... uh, we're, we're sort of pulling from Paul's letter to the church in Rome on that. But there it is. There it is. And so he reminds us here in verse 3, Jesus rose again. And he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. That means that these are things that were absolutely proven. People saw him. Above 500 brethren, one of the gospel accounts Uh, actually gives it to us above 500 brethren. That means more than 500 believers saw him alive again in body, in the flesh. There you have it. Say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. No, and neither was I. But they were. And when you've got over, when you have over 500 people involved in a conspiracy, someone is going to out it. And so, no one having outed it, I think we can stand on it today. Jesus rose again. And He said He was seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And He begins to speak of these things beginning in verse 4. Being assembled together with them, with the apostles, He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith He, ye have heard of Me." Well, what was that promise? Verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So, is there any that believes that the Holy Ghost has yet to be given? Hopefully not. Because Jesus said here, don't even leave Jerusalem, O ye apostles. Don't even leave Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he says it right here. Tarry at Jerusalem. Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And he said it was going to be delivered to them in verse 5, not many days hence. And what was the promise? The baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now let's read a little bit more. Beginning in verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So you can see right off the bat where their thinking 
was still lodged. Three years of Jesus' ministry. Three years of watching Him heal, resurrect, uh, solve problems, cast out demons, restore sight to the blind, loose the tongue of those that were possessed of devils and were mute as a result of it and other things that were going on. For three years, they listened to Him teach concerning heavenly things. Not necessarily the things of the earth. Some things concerning our behavior here on earth, yes, but concerning heavenly things. Three years of hearing Him teach and preach the parables of the kingdom and all of these different things that opened up their eyes to whole different ways of thinking that they had never, they had never known to think that way before. And yet, and then even after His death, even after His resurrection, even now in the midst of His showing Himself alive and walking around again, their minds, their thinking was still stuck on earthly things. Wilt thou now restore the kingdom to Israel? What did that question mean? Jesus, now that you're risen again, is it now that you're going to overthrow our Roman oppressors? and restore sovereignty to the nation of Israel, which we have not had since our forefathers lost it in the Babylonian captivity. That's what they were thinking. I'm not, thinking, I'm not saying that their thinking was bad. I'm saying that their thinking was on the lower of two things. They were still worried about the house, the car, the money, the job. They were still just focused on that earthly thing. And it's understandable. Rome was a cruel empire. They really were. They were a cruel empire. They were described as much. And I think it's even, it was, it was part of the prophecy back there in the book of Daniel and the image that, that uh, excuse me, the image that the king saw in his, in his dream and all of that. And we'll go back and study that in another Bible study, perhaps uh, be at the will of the Lord. I'm sure at some point it will be. But, Rome was cruel and Israel had been demoralized and had been occupied by one oppressor after another for hundreds of years. It's perfectly understandable that they wanted to be free of that. They wanted to be liberated from that. They wanted to be their own nation and their own people again. So they were asking him that. Yet in order for their minds to still be stuck on that thing, they obviously had forgotten about all the other things that he taught about concerning the kingdom. And so Jesus gives them an answer. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't reprove them. He doesn't, he doesn't blast them. Let me put it that way. He says in verse 7, And He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. So the question was, will you restore again the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, that's not for you to know when. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto Me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see what He did there in verses 7 and 8? He distracted them from their question. He distracted them from their main concern to try to fix their attention on something that was much more important 
and frankly, was much more valuable. Now, sovereignty is valuable. Sure, it's important. Granted all of that. But God had a plan and still has a plan concerning the sovereignty of Israel and a future plan for them that extends all the way uh, all the way down through the book of the Revelation and all of that. We're not really concerned about that at all. Okay, what he was trying to get them to focus their attention on was. It's not for you to know the times and, and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power. So he, it, it's a really slick little sleight of hand that he does there. You shall receive power. He mentions the Father's power, and then he says that you shall receive power. But what power is that? What power is that? He says, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, which the Jews did not like Samaria because there, there was, a, there was a, a difference between the Samaritans. They were a half-breed people. There was Jewish blood in them, but they had been, uh, it had been cut with some Gentile blood. There was a different culture. There was a different understanding about worshiping God. They didn't have the law. They didn't really pay much attention to any of that. He says, you'll be my witnesses unto me. You'll be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, with every iteration, he's expanding the scope of the, of the witness responsibility of Jesus' disciples. He begins with the city, Jerusalem. And then he says, in all Judea. Well, that's the country in which Jerusalem dwells, isn't it? And then he says, and in Samaria. So now it's outside the scope of pure Jewry, if you will. And then he says, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in the city and in the whole country and in the country next door to your country and into every other country throughout the world. You're going to be my witnesses. So they started out concerned about whether or not Israel was going to be an earthly kingdom again. And Jesus diverted their attention to this is more important. You're going to get power and you're going to be my witnesses and your witnesses, your witness is going to extend. Your witness of me is going to extend far beyond the borders of your little earthly kingdom. He didn't belittle their interest. He didn't belittle their priorities. He just spelled it out. He just spelled it out. This is more important than that. And when he had spoken these things, verse 9 while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven." Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is, in, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Let's stop right there. Let's back up. What happened here in verses 9 and 10? Well, what happened is pretty plain English. Jesus, after he had finished giving his final instruction, and this, this part of Scripture here is known as the Great Commission. Jesus said, you're going to go and do this. It's also in some of the Gospels where he says that you're going to... Uh, 
to go and make disciples of all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's part of the Great Commission as well. But here he says, you're going to receive power and then you're going to be my witnesses all over the world. And after he finished telling them this, his work was completely finished. His work on earth was completely finished. There was no more need for him to remain. He was risen again from the dead. He was our sacrifice for all of our sins which are past and blessedly can still cover our sins which are present. So if so be, we repent of them. And so he was taken up bodily from the earth. Now, that's not the first time that something like this had happened, but it's the first time something like this had happened like this to a, a man resurrected from the dead forever. See, Elijah had been taken up from the earth physically back in the Old Testament. Likewise, Enoch, back in the years before the flood, had also been taken up from the earth bodily. The Bible doesn't use explicit language, but it uses implicit language when it talks about that, saying that Enoch was not, for the Lord took him. And that ties into some future prophecies as well. That links up to the, um, over to the book of the Revelation and so on. But Jesus had died and had risen again. And now he was being taken up to live forevermore. Enoch and Elijah, they got their time coming. They dodged the death bullet, but not forever. They're going to be a couple of witnesses. I know we're sort of sneak peeking over into the revelation on this. They're coming back to do a specific job over there in Israel during the end times. And then they're going to be killed in the process. And so they'll ultimately live again. They'll be resurrected as every believer will, and they will ultimately live forever. Yes, but Jesus' resurrection was for eternity, never to die again. Even Lazarus had to die again. Everybody's subject to death. And Jesus subjected himself to death for our sakes. So he was taken up forever to live forever. So let's read on. In verse 10, while they stood there gaping, looking steadfastly towards heaven, marveling that they were seeing this sight, okay? He said, behold, two men, two men stood by them in white apparel. It suggests that they were angelic beings, not just because their clothing was white, but because there's no mention of them being present before this event. So two men stood by them in white apparel, and then they spoke up, which said unto them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. What is he saying here? The same Jesus that has gone back to the Father is coming back again. That's the second coming that we should hopefully all are believing in. Jesus is coming back. Jesus was always coming back. And when he comes back, it's not going to be like he came the first time. He's not going to be born of a virgin again. He's not going to be coming to us in that kind of, in that kind of, you could almost describe it as ultimate humility. He's not going to come back like that. He's going to come back in power and in glory and in authority, and there will be no doubt in anyone's mind who this is. I think the Bible says that he shall come from the east and that the Jews, they're going through the, they'll be going through the worst part of the tribulation at that point in time. They will look upon him whom they pierced and they will lament for it. It's a slight paraphrase, but it makes it clear the Jews are going to see him coming first. And then he's going to restore things there. And then he's going to rule the earth. And that is wonderful, wonderful, 
wonderful news. Well, what's that going to mean for America? Better have our act together is what it means for America. Well, what does that mean for me as a believer individually? Well, if you're alive right now, the intention, the intention of our Lord and His expressed will, as we dig through the various letters of the apostles, this will become more and more apparent. The expressed intention of our Lord is to bring us back with Him. So what are you talking about? By the time this happens and He returns, we're already going to be gone from this earth. And so when He returns, we're going to be returning to the earth with Him. Does that make sense? Now I know I'm not giving you a lot of Scripture to back that up with, so just file it away in the back of your mind. When we get to the Revelation, we'll cover a lot of that. When we get to Timothy and Titus, I think, Thessalonians, we're going to be covering, uh, we'll be covering some of that too. But it's going to take some time. So it wasn't just spelled out in bullet points in a PowerPoint presentation for us, okay? It has to be learned from the letters, rightly discerned, rightly divided. And this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us as He grants us and helps us with understanding the Word. And that's what we're real big on here. We want to understand the Word. It's imperative that we understand the Word. Why? So we don't get carried away with a bunch of goofy, goofy wrong doctrines. That's why. And there's plenty of them in, in churches all around the world today. I'm not saying they're all bad. There's a lot of good doctrines out there too. But we don't want to be led astray by the bad stuff. So he says, the angel says, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. Not the same Judas that betrayed our Lord. That Judas was a suicide after the fact. Verse 14, he continues. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. So that's a good thing to do. They were having a prayer meeting. It's one reason why we do that. Because it's good to pray together. And one reason it's good to pray together is because ideally we can pray for the same things. And that was always part of the original vision of this church. That we would be a praying church. Praying for souls. Praying for one another. Praying for ourselves. And praying accordingly. Uh, not all of us just praying for 500 different things, but at times, all of us praying for the same thing. Surely someone's going to touch God when you've got 10 people praying for the same thing. Amen? You would think. So they were having a prayer meeting. And in verse 15 it says, And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together being about 120, men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he, was out, for he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling down, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And that's a graphic way of describing how he died. What Judas actually did is he went and hanged himself. So whether Peter was being poetic here or whether that literally happened, 
uh, in conjunction with his hanging death. I don't really know. But however it was, he died. And the money that he had been given to betray our Lord, they took that money and they, because it was the, it was the price of blood, they didn't put it in the treasury. They didn't put it in their general fund. They took it and they bought a, uh, they bought a field with it uh, to bury poor people in. I believe it was called the potter's field. But after it was purchased, after Judas's death, it gained a new name. He says in verse 19, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as the field is called in their proper tongue, Akeldama, which is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. What does that mean? His habitation. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Judas, the one that would betray our Lord. He was talking about Judas's betrayal and the end product of that was he was buried in this place and the place was going to be a graveyard. Nobody was going to build a house on that thing. It was going to be a desolate territory. It was going to be a desolate place. And his bishopric, all that refers to was his office as an apostle. He says, his bishopric, let another take. Let his part in this ministry, let somebody else have it. Let somebody else have it. Verse 21. Wherefore of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day when he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. What were they talking about doing here? They had to replace Judas. There had been 12 apostles, one of them a traitor, who went and killed himself. He was dead and gone. Someone needed to fill that space. So Peter stood up in the midst of them and explained it. This is what happened and this is what needs to be done. We need someone who's been with us since the beginning of this thing to be a witness with us concerning Jesus' resurrection and step into this office. So what did they do? Probably one of the only examples of the democratic process that you, that you ever find in the church. They cast lots. They cast lots. And so in beginning in verse 23, it says, and they appointed two, they elected two nominees, Joseph named Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So what happened here in chapter 1? It's not a lot of doctrine in this, but there is some history to know and to understand. Well, they elected a replacement to replace Judas the traitor. But I want to call your attention to something. If Matthias was really to be an apostle, why do we read nothing about him after his election? Not a letter, not a historical account. Next to nothing, if not nothing, is penned about him and recorded in history. And now I want you to consider this. Who wrote 14 books of the New Testament? The Apostle Paul. Now, I'm going to venture into a little bit of speculation here, but I'm declaring that plainly. So don't take this as some sort of galvanized doctrine. Okay, Don't make this an absolute. But it would seem like this voting thing that they did 
for an office of the ministry wasn't really the way God wanted it done. Because the Apostle Paul, who came along some years later, would even say himself that he was a man born as one out of time or out of due time. And so there's an implication there in the Scriptures that maybe Matthias wasn't the guy they should have chosen. Maybe there was no hurry, no rush to fill that office. Maybe they should have simply waited on the Lord. So what's the lesson for tonight that we can take out of Acts chapter 1? Well, there's a, there's a few. But the one I really want to nail down, I want to take out of these last few verses concerning the election process. And we don't read of this ever being done again throughout the entire book of Acts. Nor is, nor is, such, a, nor is, such, a thing, nor is such a thing recorded or even suggested in any of the letters of the apostles. Wait on the Lord. When some kind of a major change has happened in your life, when something has gone down that has, that has significantly shifted your perspective or something that's going on in your life or whatever it is, when you're in the midst of a major change, wait on God. And now my wife, she had read something that said, until God opens the next door, praise Him in the hallway. Wait on God. Don't rush. Unless rushing is something that you are absolutely confident is what God wants you to do. Wait on God. Be patient. Because there are a lot of blessings that don't get realized in people's lives because they were not patient with God. They were not patient with God. Now, that's not a loaded statement. I'm not thinking of anyone's particular situation right now at all. So please don't read into this. The preacher's not trying to tag anybody. But God knows. God knows all of what's going on in our lives. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. He will reveal His will for you sooner or later. We're in a series of studies right now that are called what? Letters to Young Churches? We're in the book of Philippians. But in the studies of these letters to young churches, every few studies, we're coming back to the book of Acts. Maybe every two, maybe every three or four. But we're going to be coming back to this because this is giving us our history as the body of Christ. It's giving us our history as the church of the living God. And it's very important to know. There's a lot of questions, doctrinal questions, that get answered in this book right here. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.